I uh, call this month Holy Month uh, because it is March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament. And I am a crazy basketball fan. My, my wife and daughter uh, have decided that this is a part of my life they will not be a part of. Um, the, the sport of basketball is of zero interest to them whatsoever. And uh, I grew up playing and, of course, grew up watching it and then went to college and uh, experienced the joy of watching my beloved Mountaineer basketball team play. Um, one of the things I love about the NCAA tournament is, is it enables you to be a casual fan. You know, I cheer for teams that I had never cheered for before because they're going to upset a high seed or because a friend of mine goes to their school or there's some, you know, sort of kind of cultural connection for me. But, I, but, it's, but there's no risk for me. I can, I can watch a team lose, you know, try to win and lose and go, wow, they played great. You know, and there's, a, there's kind of an emotional disconnect for me. That's one of the reasons I like it. Except for when it comes to my team. There is no emotional disconnect at all. It's just painful and grueling. And, and that's because I'm not just a fan of West Virginia athletics. I am a follower. That's the distinction. I'm a fanatic. I'm one of these people in, in the parlance of Morgantown, West Virginia, is actually a group of us. We're called Mountaineer Maniacs. And this is a real crowd, real crowd. And you say, well, what, what, what constitutes? What do you have to do to be a Mountaineer Maniac? You have to get your bottled water with your team logo on it. That's one thing you have to do. To kind of, I mean it. This actually is a Mountaineer Maniac. Uh, you have to have friends know that you're so crazy that they would buy you yard gloves with your school's logo on them. You have to be stupid enough to put uh, a chrome WV logo on the back of your car. I have helmets in both of my offices here at the church and up at the college. I talk about it in my classes. The bonus question answer for every one of my quizzes is West Virginia University. So even if you don't know, you know you you get a bonus point by just filling in my alma mater. I'm sort of insane, and and that's okay. Uh, I'm okay with that. But I use that as a to show people that there is a substantial distinction between being a fan and being a follower. Jesus had both. And in today's two readings that surround our beginning of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, we see both of these things in play. We see Jesus having a crowd of people that thought, he's pretty cool, I like this Jesus guy. And then you had a group of people who would have been called in their day fanatics. You know, they're cra- there's crazy Christians you know, it was not necessarily always a positive connotation associated with being called a Christian. In John 12, the first 11 verses, you see the story of some of Jesus' followers. In particular, I want to read quickly verse 1 and 2 from John 12 to give you a little background on some of the followers that were a part of this story. Six days before Passover, it says in verse 1, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Let me give you some background if you don't know who Lazarus was. He was friends with Jesus, he and his two sisters. Their their family believed in Jesus early in his ministry, and one time Lazarus died. And Jesus was away doing ministry someplace, and word came to him. And when he came back days later, Lazarus had already been put in the tomb in grave cloths and everybody was so distraught and it says that even Jesus cried because he saw their pain and so Jesus brought Lazarus back to life 
he spoke and said, come forth, and Lazarus, in kind of a walking dead moment, comes out with the grave cloths on his head. And, you know, you know it's, it's one of those moments where, where you realize, wow, this guy was dead, and now he's been raised to life. This really happened. But it serves as a metaphor for all Christians in terms of what has to happen for all of us to come into relationship with Christ and become his fanatical followers. It, he has to bring us to life. He has to enable you and I to see who he is, to understand who he is, and be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is a work he does in us that enables us to see, believe, and follow. And what happens in our lives, and a person who's a genuine follower of Jesus, is a lot of what was happening in the lives of this family. After Jesus brought them to life, Lazarus and his family members threw a party for Jesus. They celebrated him. They celebrated with him. They enjoyed his presence. And one of them, Mary, lavishly pours out this perfume on him. She did not know, as he would say, that he was being prepared for burial. But she was saying, you're so amazing. I'm going to take something expensive and, and put it on your feet and wash your feet with my hair. That this was a, an act of of just absolute honor and lavish love, treating him as royalty and anointing him with this ointment. So the question would be, how do we know really that people, these people in particular, were followers of his and not just fans? And this is really what I'd like to do with our Palm Sunday text today, is dissect sort of what the distinction is between somebody who's a fan at a distance and somebody who is a real follower. And I'll start by saying this about fans. Fans of Jesus celebrate when times are good. And this is true in athletics. It's true in a lot of things. There are lots of people around when everything is easy and comfortable. And we look here in this text, John 12, verses 12 through 15, and see that the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. I want to pause right there and reiterate that this was an actual time in history they were preparing for the Passover. This is the Passover. This was a week-long festival. And it actually happened at this time of year, unlike Christmas, where, you know, the Roman Empire said, you know, we want to celebrate the birth of Christ. Let's find something. Okay, we're going to turn this winter solstice into Jesus' birth. You do know that in spite of what you saw in Back to the Future, Jesus was not born on December 25th, 000, right? All right, so, um, but we do know that Jesus was crucified on the Friday before Passover. We do know that Jesus was part of this week, which we call Holy Week. We know it started with this celebration that begins all week long and then culminates with the Passover supper. We also know that in this case, that Jesus was speaking to a group of people who came from all over the country to have this celebration in Jerusalem. So I pick up again in verse 13. The people, all of this crowd, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Palm Sunday, as we call it, is depicted in all four Gospels, which is not the case with every story about Jesus. Sometimes it's in two, sometimes it's in three. Sometimes in the case of John, he's the only one that would record a particular incident. And it's, 
it's important to note that John was particularly close to Jesus. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. He was really a good friend, so much so that John would refer to himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Had a really intensely close relationship with Jesus. And John spends an inordinate amount of time compared to the other gospel writers writing about Holy Week. Beginning here with John 12, he'll go the next eight chapters. That's eight of 21 chapters of his entire gospel of the life of Jesus spent on the week that we are inaugurating today. I mean, he spends a lot of time. That is the central thought in his, in his writing is it's all about this week. It's all about Jesus fulfilling the Passover mystery that he would become the Passover lamb sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. You know, it's uh, also an interesting thing to see that the crowd that had gathered, this massive group of fans with their, with their palm branches, that these just days later will be calling for Jesus' death. Which begs the question, what were they doing on Palm Sunday if like six days later they were going to be going, crucify him? Well, they're celebrating two things, most of which they didn't completely understand. The first they would be celebrating was that Jesus was a king who was worthy of being praised. Now, Christians do the palm things on Palm Sunday. You see them up here. You see them in our entryway. Because according to the Gospels, Jesus' followers covered his path in palm branches as he entered Jerusalem. This was the custom of greeting a high-ranking official. The palm branch also signified victory. So when kings would come back from war, people would wave in this triumphal procession that the victory had been won. Waving palms would have resembled this. In part, waving of palms is a foreshadowing of something John saw in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. John, who wrote this gospel, also wrote the book of Revelation. And when he saw eternity, one of the sights he saw was all of us gathered with all of the saints from all of eternity, waving palms before the throne of God, just, just celebrating our exalted King Jesus. John's gospel shows us that they were celebrating a king worthy of being praised, but obviously the crowd couldn't have understood the significance of the kind of kingdom Jesus was bringing. What was in play for them was a cultural benefit to being associated with that at the time. And you see this if you grew up in the southeast or you lived there for any length of time as my family did. It's still culturally sort of cool to go to church. People generally will say, if you ask them, do you have any faith or do you have a religion? They'll say, I'm a Christian. They'll identify very quickly with that. They are a fan of Jesus. And oftentimes what happens with fans of Jesus is as long as they're a cultural, as long as there's a societal benefit to being aligned with him, they're good with it. But what happens is, is when Jesus works away from his love thy neighbor material into some, into some tougher stuff, that tends to make people go, okay, hold on a second, this is getting a little crazy for me. And then you discern whether or not and whether somebody is a follower. See, people love it when Jesus talks about love. But when Jesus starts talking about laying down your life for him, people start getting a little antsy. When Jesus says, you must obey me and trust me that my perspective on the world is accurate and yours is not, people go, hold on, chief. It's a little much for me. 
these people, without really knowing it, were in part celebrating a king who was worthy to be praised, but also a king who was about to bring peace. Now, when he came in, he was riding on a donkey. And in ancient Greco-Roman worlds, people would go, when they were in peace, they would come on this type of beast of burden. It wouldn't communicate war like a war horse would. If you were on a horse with all of your gear, it would communicate, I am coming to bring the sword. Jesus came on a donkey symbolizing his move of peace. And while he not was, was not technically a king, his followers considered him to be the king of Israel. And the crowd, the fans, began to say, Hosanna, which is Hebrew for save. They began to shout, you are the king, even the king of Israel. Now, they misunderstood what his kingly role was going to be. They did not realize what he was saving them from, which was the curse of death that was the result of our sin. He was bringing a peace that was a, solving a dilemma between a people of his kingdom who had rebelled against his authority, who had committed, if you will, in the parlance of kingdom world, they were, they'd committed treason. And so they deserved to be taken away. And he was saying, we're going to reconcile. We're going to make peace. Again, the crowds wouldn't have understood that peace. Uh, this king, they thought, was going to be the one who was going to make life on earth easier. In fact, we're going to go back a couple of places here in John chapter 6 to track through how people reacted when they thought Jesus, as fans of Jesus, that Jesus was going to make life easier for them. One thing that happens in John 6 is Jesus feeds 5,000. People get meals, and it's very exciting to see the miracle. And, and you've got to imagine if Jesus makes bread and fish, it's going to be pretty good. And so, you know, it's not going to be like Arthur Treacher's or, or some kind of fast food fish. This is going to be the real deal. And so you've got, you've got this great experience, this miracle they're having and then it says that they tried to make him at that moment. This is our guy. He's going to provide all this really cool stuff and make life really easy. I'm willing to be one of his fans. And it says here in John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, that when the people saw the sign he'd done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And there are two realities about the crowd of Jesus' fans in any generation. One is they don't really understand his mission, but often imagine that he exists to forward their agenda. So I, I don't want to pick on anybody. I'm just saying in culture you can see it. When people align with Christianity because they think it will help their cause, and sometimes this happens in politics. That, you know, I want, all of a sudden, I'm going to sort of cozy up to this group of religious people because it makes it easier for me to get elected. See, this is really what happens in the life of a lot of people. They will come to Jesus and say, I really think he's kind of cool. But then if Jesus doesn't do for them what, he, what they want him to do for them, they cease feeling that they really have any energy to continue looking after or following after him. Jesus is supposed to make us healthy and wealthy. Fans don't understand that Jesus isn't here to serve them. Now, he does serve them, 
But his purpose is that we would know who he was and in response to his gift would be there to worship him, to honor him, to live for his glory. When life gets difficult, fans often abandon ship. This was true even at West Virginia University where during losing seasons, attendance drops significantly. Now, I was always at the game because I feel better about myself by telling you that, but this is the nature of Fairweather fans. I am an FSU grad now. We were in Tallahassee for many, many moons as a family, both my children born there. Um, We bought our first house there. I went into ministry there for the first time. Exciting associations for us with Florida State University. And having graduated from there recently, I I do enjoy being a fan of Florida State. But that's what I am. I'm a fan. And so when they came to the Rose Bowl a couple years ago to play for the national championship, I was really great and excited about the game. Uh, I thought, you know, I hope they win. And it would have been disappointing if they'd lost, but it wouldn't have been devastating. Um, On the other hand, my son, who was born in Tallahassee and our first church we started in Tallahassee was in the shadow of the Bobby Bowden field. Uh, and, And so my son, at the earliest of age, was going to Florida State football games and he would just be crushed when they lost. And this is us at the Rose Bowl uh, and preparing to go in. And, and while I wouldn't have been crushed if they lost, he, my buddy Emmett, Karen Gwaltney, who sings here at the church, those people would have been distraught. They'd have been inconsolable because they are followers of FSU. Uh, that would happen to me if WVU ever got to a national championship game which seems unlikely, so I'm pretty safe. My point is that fans of Jesus don't live and die by virtue of their association with him. Followers of Jesus, their whole life is wrapped up in him. He is the source of their joy. He is the source of their identity. He is the source of what fills their soul. He guides their life. He is their God, their Lord. And so when circumstances change, it doesn't necessarily mean that anything practically has changed between them and Jesus. And that's really the second thing I'll show you from our passage as we distinguish between fans and followers is that while fans of Jesus celebrate when times are good, followers of Jesus continue when things are grueling. I mean, just awful. And I want to show you in two different sections of today's narrative how this plays out because you can roll over this stuff and think, oh, I didn't even think about that. Look at verse 9. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So I want to stop there real quick before I read verse 10 to tell you when they say the Jews, this isn't just like Jewish people. They're speaking of the leadership the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who were the power brokers of this subculture had now come out to Jesus to see the the, the chaos that was taking place and their market share of the religious world was decreasing and they felt like they were feeling threatened and so they were going to enter into this and they had Lazarus in their sights as well. And in verse 10 it says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. 
because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Can you believe this? All this guy did was die and by no choice of his own be brought back to life. And people come around to ask, hey, did this guy really bring you back to life? Yeah, he really brought me back to life. I mean, I was out cold. The next thing you know, I'm in my grave clothes, and I don't know how I got there. And, and now all of a sudden, he is the object of the ire of the cultural heroes of the day, the people with power in his day. He is now, by virtue of his association, on the outs, and they're actually going to try to kill him. I mean, this is huge. I mean, this is how some people in our world that are Christians live to this day. You and I have it pretty cushy here in Los Estados Unidos. All right? we're, we're, we're pretty safe as followers of Jesus here. That isn't necessarily the case everywhere. The crowd, it says in verse 17, had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. They continued to bear witness the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he'd done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. These people were super threatened by the presence of Christians. It was going to, it was going to change by implication a lot about what they thought. It was going to make people who had previously been completely on board with their worldview now say, I'm going to see it this guy's way. And that was threatening to them. I want you to know that this is going to be the experience of the 21st century Christian, at least in the West. It is going to come down to, are you willing to say, I follow Jesus, in spite of the fact that the people who control the culture no longer think it's cool for me to be a follower of Jesus. Followers of Christ, as opposed to fans, continue obeying Jesus' commands, continue proclaiming the gospel, even when the crowd stops cheering, even when they become the minority. Followers of Jesus know that they'll suffer. Jesus told them, you're going to suffer. Followers of Jesus are knocked down but knocked out. They just keep coming back to the fight. In John 12, 16, the 16th verse, is something really fascinating that will help us see the essence of what distinguishes followers from fans. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. His disciples said, after he was risen from the dead, this Jesus whom they watched be tortured to death and buried in a tomb, and then they saw him back alive. He was glorified into the king of kings that he is, risen as he told them he was to the right hand of the father all authority on heaven and earth according to matthew 28 jesus says has been given to me they see him in his glory they realize goodness gracious we thought we knew who this jesus of nazareth was now we really get it he is god incarnate he is the son of the living god god from god light from light they get it it changes their world It's because they knew who he was that they were able to process. And there are really two aspects of being a follower of Christ that we see lived out in their life experience. The first is followers persist when they don't know the full details. See, his disciples, like us, are getting their information on a need-to-know basis. 
while we think that the Bible is God's word, the Bible does not address every issue of life. There are some things that the Bible does not venture to explain to us about God, about why he does what he does. There are parts of our experience with God where we are called to trust him spite of the fact that we don't have all the answers. For some people, that's a sticking point. For people like followers of Jesus, it was not easy, but they came to the conclusion that if he's alive, what choice do I have? You know what I mean? If he really is the risen son of God, just because he hasn't spelled out all the details, just because there are areas that I don't get, or I don't understand why I have to do it this way, or I don't understand, you know, uh, the whole economics of how the whole thing was put together, that doesn't mean that he's not the Messiah. It just means he hasn't given me that piece of data. Followers persist when they don't know the full details. And followers persevere when they know whom they've encountered. So critical to knowing and being at peace is knowing who you're dealing with. And Jesus being more than just someone off in the distance that you think is is really kind of cool and okay until he expects something of you, and then you realize, okay, hold on a minute. If you know Jesus and you experience him and you find your life in him and you really believe and know that he has been risen from the grave then what choice do you have? I remember when I was a senior in college, I fell in love, and it wasn't with my wife. It was with a girl I was dating at the time, and I graduated from college, and she went 180 and decided she didn't like me anymore, which made sense to all my friends at the time. But, at the, you, know, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, awful. And in an immature perspective at age 22... I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't know why I don't just go out and party like it's 1999. This is in 1987, so that actually meant something back then. (laughs) Prince was popular. Um, But I remember one thought keeping me from saying, you know, I'm just going to go hog wild here. uh, uh, Of having any sense that I was wronged or that God owed me something. And it was this one singular thought that Jesus was alive. It was, it was the resurrected Christ that I wasn't dealing with a religious system that I'd bought into that was supposed to be there to serve me, to make life easier. That I was actually in relationship with the risen Christ and I just really didn't have much choice. I, I mean, I, I'm glad I was stuck, but that's how I felt like, okay, I'm just going to have to endure this because I don't understand it, but I'm not going to turn away from the one who has rescued me and the one who has risen from the dead. See, in John 6, the one we referenced earlier, what had happened was Jesus fed the 5,000 people, tried to make him king. Jesus said, you know what, we need to go ahead and split. I'm going to go up and have some time alone with the Father. You guys meet you on the other side of the lake, get in the boat. They got a head start. Jesus was really apparently enjoying the time with the Father, the most sanity he had in his existence on earth. And so he got, you know, had to catch up with the guys. So being the son of the living God, he just decided to walk across the lake and this was the encounter that they had with him where it's like all of a sudden they see him walking and, and they freak out and they realize, oh my gosh, this, this Jesus walks on water. And they get to the other side of the lake and the crowd's still there. See, they had that really great meal and they wanted another one and they wanted to see another miracle. And they're all present and Jesus decides, if you read the narrative in 6, he's going to thin the herd. He's going to talk about, in, in metaphorical terms, about 
what is saving people. And he's going to begin to hint at his body and blood being the means of our salvation and, and that his body is going to be killed and his blood is going to be spilled. And he makes the statement that unless you eat my body and eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my followers. You will not inherit eternal life. Well, this is a group of people that weren't allowed to eat pigs, let alone human beings, and certainly not gallons of blood at a, you know, at a pop. And so the, they were saying, this guy's nuts. And so they scatter, right? They don't get it. They don't understand what he's talking about. They don't see that he's talking in metaphors. They just freak out. And they're like, I'm not going to follow this guy anymore. And this is where we get in John 6, verses 66 through 69. After this... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Their encounter with Jesus was real. They knew who they were dealing with. His response is what happens to a genuine follower of Christ. You go, I don't get it, but you're God, so I'll keep following. Jesus came to bring life. Followers know that real life is found in him alone. So even if life circumstances become challenging, that doesn't change the reality of their soul's delight. Followers of Jesus continue following when things are grueling jesus died he rose again followers of christ know this so the evidence and endurance in spite of trials and in spite of failures in fact we can tell when somebody has really experienced jesus is that when they blow it they actually run to jesus you see because if you know the history of this week you're going to know that by next week by next friday Peter is going to have denied Christ himself. But the way we know he was a follower was not that he didn't have a lapse or a moment where he denied Jesus, but that he ran back to him instead of away from him. This is what followers do when they screw up. They don't run away and say, okay, I'm no perfect anymore. You weren't perfect to begin with. Jesus knew this. And if you knew that he knew this and you really were in relationship with him, you'd go, blew that one, Father, I'm really sorry, and you'd come back and run to him instead of away. Those who've been awakened by Jesus to know how gracious and forgiving he is know that even though they deserve judgment for their sin and failure, God the Father mercifully forgives because of what the King of Kings does on the calendar next Friday by dying on the cross as a substitute for us. Theologians call it substitutionary atonement, We'll sing in a minute that the wrath of God is being satisfied. Jesus was willing to, sacks her, to, to stand in our place and receive a punishment that was due anyone who would ever trust in him for their sins. He was willing to be the scapegoat. He embodied our sin and hence suffered in our place. Now, even though deserving of some type of punishment, we are given mercy and grace. My friend David Liu goes to church here. He went out on a limb this week and bet me 
He bet me that his Princeton women's team would beat my West Virginia Mountaineer women in round one of the women's NCAA tournament. You know, we're a couple of party animals when we're betting on women's NCAA basketball. (laughs) The person who would lose this bet would receive the following punishment. They would wear the other team's college jersey and sing the fight song of the other team in the lobby of our church on a Sunday morning. Wouldn't that be fun to see? I thought so too. Well, Princeton lost. And David texted me earlier this week that he owed me a serenade. I was ready to administer this justice. And then Friday happened. My WVU men's team, predicted by many to make the Final Four and creating within me a resulting hope to the level of ecstasy, were abused and beaten soundly by a 13 seed in the first round of the men's tournament. There's something about having your dreams crushed by Stephen F. Austin as a college that takes the joy out of watching a buddy sing Hail West Virginia in your favorite football jersey. There's just something that just doesn't seem just or right about that. And so today I have offered to David mercy. I extended to him grace because the WVU men's team embodied failure at the highest level. I've allowed them to take the humiliation that David Liu justly deserves for betting against me last week. I have decided that the Mountaineer basketball team has created enough suffering for the week and no longer does David need to entertain you all with a chorus of my favorite fight song. Now, All of this is hopefully going to, in some way, demonstrate that what Jesus does for us is allows us to come to that moment of panic where we think we're going to have to do something or we realize we can't do anything to make ourselves right with him. That moment of sort of holy terror where you go, this is just bad and I deserve this. And he comes in and says, mercy, mercy. Someone else is going to be substituted for you. Somebody else is going to suffer in your place. And in Jesus' case, Jesus was saying, that's me. We celebrate this week, and it is the central reality of the Christian faith. It is the foundational reality upon which all other Christian realities are built. This is not just another holiday for us. It is the holiday for us. It is the week to think, what has God done to restore me? That he has taken me from being somebody who could be at a distance, kind of admiring Jesus at some level, but not really willing to allow my life to be built around his, allow my joy to be connected to his, And by the miracle of his grace has enabled me to become a follower of his. Where my whole life is wrapped up in seeing and knowing and worshiping and following the risen Savior. Let's pray this week that we would not just walk through another holy week as if it was just another week in our year. It is such an appropriate time for us to take stock of whether or not we really want our hearts to be his. Because I know he really wants us to know and enjoy him and ultimately glorify him. So let's pray to that end, shall we? 
Our dear God, we're humbled by uh, the amazing grace you've extended to us in Jesus and pray this week that we would in particular be people who were uh, uh, developing a, a real clear understanding of just how fortunate we are to be your children. And Father, that we would begin to take on by virtue of our experience with you characteristics of ones who have really and genuinely come into encounter with you and now follow you with all of our heart. Father, we need you. We sing it in church. We need you, Lord. Every day we need you. And I pray that uh, you would help us this week to know just how there and present you are to meet those needs. We pray in Jesus' name.